The Rubbish Podcast. This is the Rubbish Podcast, hosted by the Lagon Chef. Welcome to episode three of the Rubbish Podcast. This time we're listening to Scott Parker. Um, he's a very good friend of mine and he takes us through his whole journey through his Michelin star training, working at the Midsummer House, working with René Rezepi, Pierre de Terre, you name it. It's a really interesting listen for any of you young chefs out there that want to understand what it takes. So, happy listening. The Rubbish Podcast. Just to introduce yourself and a bit of your cooking background, like how you got into cooking, what's your past, a little whistle stop. Like you imagine you walked into a party and someone said, you know, Scott, <laughs> give me a lowdown of your career in two minutes. <laughs> Fuck, okay. Two minutes. Every time, every time this happens, it goes on for about 25, but I will really try and sum it up. <laughs> I started cooking... Uh, fuck me, I was 13 um, and my stepdad had a pub at the time. I think you know when my parents got divorced, we used to go up to see my my stepdad and my two brothers would work front of house and I'd work back of house, like just washing pots. And to be honest, I just wanted to be out the way. I didn't want people looking at me as like a kid, like serving them food and probably the chances are I would have dropped it on them anyway. So I thought like my best bet was stay in the back out of the way doing the washing up and as I was in there you know I was seeing these two chefs running around like non-stop just making food for like literally from nothing these creations were coming out and you know the smell of caramelized meat and fish being deep fried and and chips and just like proper pub grub you know it wasn't anything special but it just just baffled me that these these two chefs were in there running and rushing around <laughs> creating this food so I kind of got a bug for it then and then sort of as we grew up and school sort of came to a close uh, at 16. I was sort of like, Fuck, I'd, I'm not really an academic. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not academic at all. I was like, but I really like cooking and it, you know, what's the best way to go about it? So I went to Westminster College in London, um, which is a great school, spent three years there. But whilst I was there, it was, it, it was very high, it was highly competitive because it's sort of like all the kids from all different backgrounds wanting to become a chef, you know, and this was just coming out of the Jamie Oliver era. Right. So what can I do to get ahead? So I took a job each year, um, at Westminster and after college I'd go to work so the first year I worked at the Grosvenor House Hotel and I couldn't have been any more than 16, 17 I was 17 actually um, and I worked in conference and banqueting and we were doing like 2,000 meals I did I, I did about three days work there when I was on like just working sort of doing chef catering and it was fucking horrendous I was like <laughs> <laughs> everywhere you look there's like towers of spinach and, and carrots and honestly I'd never seen anything like it it was it was fucking mental you'd end up by like peeling carrots for like it felt like two days like your hands yeah. were like hammy by the end of it <laughs> Um, but I loved it. I went in there with a mate of mine from college and we did a year and actually I did, did about six months. And then after I asked to move up into the restaurant, because I said, you know, I want to become a restaurant chef. I don't want to be a banquet chef. I can't do this for the rest of my life, but great experience. Did like PFA awards, did the BAFTAs, did loads of big ones. Went upstairs into the restaurant um, 
and and the restaurant was dead. It was the chef was Paul Miller, and we were doing like five covers a night. It was it was pathetic. <laughs> like literally, I'd walk off and go and be like, "Oh, I'm going to get some tomatoes from conference and banqueting." And those old London five star hotels—they're like a labyrinth underneath. Yeah, yeah. You could get lost for like hours. I'd come back and I'd be like, "Still no check on." No, okay. Well, yeah. I'll go off. So I did that for the first year, and then the second year, I decided that I wasn't actually learning. I needed to get into a, a kitchen that was busy and. And maybe like at the next step above. So I went to go and work for Andrew Turner at the Bentley Kempinski. And at the time was a five rosette uh, place. And his food was, was incredible. He was doing like foie gras parfaits and, you know, lobster thermidors and things like that. that like now I talk about it's standard, but like back then was really glamorous, you know, five-star classic food. And uh, I, I was doing um, mostly evenings and then I did weekends and I did breakfast. I did um, Saturday and Sunday morning breakfast. So I'd stay in the hotel and uh, I'd go down in the morning and he would be there and I'd have to go with a tray of eggs. There'd be poached eggs. There'd be uh, egg white omelette. There'd be an omelette. There'd be fried eggs. There'd be scared, a full tray of all the different eggs for him to taste and then say, go and start service. So it was there where I sort of realised that, you know, <laughs> There's a, lot, there's a lot more to cooking than just frying fish in a deep fat fryer and, and caramelising a bit of steak. Yeah, yeah. And I really caught this like bug of an obsession of perfection um, and not just through eggs, I suppose. It was just translated. That was that one thing that he was so particular about. You know, if you can get your eggs right at breakfast, you're, you're not doing, you know, you can't go too fucking wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a year with him. And then my last year, my third year, I said, you know, I needed, to, I wanted to get into Michelin. I always wanted to get into a Michelin kitchen. Um, and now at this stage, I was 18, 19 and, and I knocked on doors. Like I went, I knocked on everyone's door and I knocked on Pierre de Terre's door. And they said to me initially, they laughed at me. They were like, nah, you're at school, mate. Like, what? <laughs> Can't work here. And it was a very small kitchen with a very tight brigade. So there's only, you know, one person, one section, that was it. There was no spare carryover for like room for any baggage or some fucking snotty nosed kid from school. Yeah. yeah. I, I walked away pretty dejected, um, but they said, come back and do a stage, which is like you work for free, which is quite common. So I did that. And then I also went and knocked on Eric Chaveau's door. He was at the Capitol at the time and he also had two stars. And I staged with him and he was just mental. I mean, the guy was galloping around the kitchen like he was on, on a horse calling his chef's cowboys. <laughs> and I was part, I was, on the, I was on the larder. We were doing the cold starters and the guy on the larder was this small German guy. I'll never forget it to this day. And he was shaking all the time. I was like, mate, why are you shaking? He was like, I just don't sleep. I was like, well, oh, you know, I also have sleepless nights as well sometimes when I'm nervous. I'm like, what do you mean you don't sleep? He's like, no, I've not slept for six months. I was like, mate, that's pretty, pretty fucking bad. Should you not get that scene to you? He's like, I'm just so nervous. And the chef's like throwing stuff at him. I was like, yeah, fuck, I'm not working here. Yeah, yeah. I sort of realised what Michelin was. Well, not Michelin isn't about no sleep and people being thrown things, but it was just that pressure. And I was like, wow, like, you know, I've really got to want it to get stuck in. Anyway, eventually I went back to Pieter and I kept knocking on the door, kept working for free. And they said, all right, we will, we'll take you on. Shane Osborne was the head chef at the time. He said, you can do Thursday night, Friday night. No, yeah, Thursday night, Friday night, and then all day Saturday. So I went in early, made the bread of them. Um, and it was a complete game changer for me. I went from obviously 
working out in, in working my way up to it but Michelin was a different ball game you know yeah. the, the girls, we were in there work, making the bread we got there at half past six in the morning you wouldn't be finishing until half past twelve in the morning one o'clock by the time you get night buses tubes trains you know eventually I was sleeping in my car uh, the other yeah, end what, of the car were you living at the time were you still out so I, was, so I was at my old man's in Takeley, and yeah. then I had a girlfriend who lived uh, in, in North London. So I was like fleeting between the three. But, you know, I can't turn up to my girlfriend's house at like one o'clock in the morning saying that I've just been cooking. Any <laughs> <laughs> like fish? Of course you have, mate. With that faces in Hoddesdon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, so I, I went and I went on, they took me on. Um, finished my third year at college, got my diploma, which I was very proud about because it was actually the first time really academically I'd achieved anything. Um, yeah. It was something that I wanted to learn and study. Um, whereas I think at school, you know, I just didn't care about anything else. And it's funny how some of the things I learned in school really carried over into the modern day science of cooking. You know, we talk about chlorophyll and photosynthesis and things like that quite quite fluently now in cooking. Whereas when I started, it was very much traditional French cooking. That's so- really interesting. It's kind of like, you know, when you're at school, you do kind of just go, when the fuck am I going to use algebra? Or when the hell am I going to use this? And then it's only later on in life where you're like, I wish I knew what pie was. You know, in hindsight, yeah, of course I would have spent more time learning at school, but I also, you know, I was very led into the sports route. So, so anyway, when I finished college, um, Peter Tell offered me a full-time position, which I took and I spent another two and a half years there and rose through the ranks from, from Demi to Chef de Partier. And, and um, you know, two and a half years in those days, you know, to do a year in a two-star kitchen, you, you know, you get a badge almost because you've yeah. survived really is surviving you know it's it's dog eat dog like I said there's one person per section you know I was held up by the throat I was pushed my head down to eat I was one one story I I, I was whilst I was still at college actually I used to the, my last job was to weigh up the bread for the guy to come and make the bread in the morning if it wasn't me coming on on a Saturday and I think it, I weighed it up Thursday it was late. It must have been after one o'clock. Weighed the bread up, and I didn't weigh the salt. And you used to put them all in packets. So then, when they make the bread this morning, it's like you know you just switch yourself on as a robot. Anyway, this guy made the bread, went through the whole process, and obviously didn't put salt in. But you know, it wasn't his fucking fault. Apparently, it was my fault. So when yeah. I got in the afternoon after college, there was a bowl of bread on the floor. As soon as you come down the stairs into the kitchen with Scott's dinner written on it, and I was like, oh, this can't be fucking good. This can't. So I, I, I literally looked pop pop made in like that. Before I knew it, the sous chef had grabbed me like this. And I'm like, he said, do you know what you fucking done? I was like, well, something to do with the bread, I think. <laughs> and and anyway, lo and behold, I didn't weigh the salt up. So he didn't put the salt in the bread, but he made the bread and it was my fault because I'm the lowest common denominator and an easy target. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, so, so Pied de Terre, finished Pied de Terre, um, and a, a restaurant called Hibiscus, which was in Ludlow, which had two Michelin stars, was run by a guy called Claude Bozzi, uh, were moving to London. And it was sort of the talk of the town, really, because Claude, this French chef, was cooking the most fucking amazing but peculiar food, like cauliflower souffle with blue cheese ice cream and, and um, cuttlefish and tripe uh, bake with pig ear cake. And, it, and he had two Michelin stars, and I was like, wow, this is fucking weird but I really want to learn a different style of cooking and a different approach to food so when he moved down to London I took a job with him and uh, I would he took me on as as a chef de partier and uh, within two weeks of me arriving there in the January the Michelin guide had come out and uh, we'd gone from two star to one star 
So he pulled me down into the office and he said, listen, you fucker. We, if we don't take our second star back, he said, I'm going to make you my junior sous chef. If we don't take our second star back next year, you can fuck off in his French accent. So no, I said, I say, was he South African or was he, was he French? Yeah, he was a bit, a bit of a blend at the time. <laughs> <laughs> He'd been traveling. <laughs> so, so I said, you know, fucking hell, it's been a bit bittersweet, been promoted. And then obviously knowing that if you don't get it, you're going to get the chop. And what I went through that year, I think we had 12 chefs at the beginning of that day. And at the end of the day, we had like six. Yeah. It was fucking ruthless. I mean, he was ruthless. His search for perfection, his um, tenacity in the kitchen was just overwhelming and people just couldn't take it. But I'd been in London for two years and I'd worked with some, some hard nuts. So I was pretty weathered to it. And when I say weathered, you know, it does affect you, but I kind of like, just, just like a punch bag. I was like, all right, well, I'm learning every day I was learning. And I took it upon myself to, it was my responsibility. If I'm getting shouted out, I've done something wrong, you know, yeah. regardless. Um, yeah, I found that, um, I found that, it's, you know, talking about kitchens and stuff, is when you, you say that you're a bit of a punch bag and you are basically, the further you get down the chain, is it just it just passes someone else's baggage on. Like when I was in London, I, I didn't do any of this. I just went into like a nice restaurant, had a really fantastic time, you know, drank during the shift because it was very relaxed. And then I went to Floridita with Andy Rose. And it was the first place I went with a chef that was, you know, a big chef. And I was there and I like walked in. I was like, hello, everyone. And everyone's like, what, why are you talking to me? And I was like, well, we're not allowed to chat. Like, no. And then you do something wrong. And it's like, God, I, haven't, I, I was not talking back. I was like trying to be friendly. And I was like, I haven't done anything. Did you want me to redo that? He's like, fuck it, redo it. You know, get it at me. And I'm like, guys, let's just communicate like humans. Like, you know, come on. You know, a bit fluid. And then, yeah, it was just carnage. But I think that's the... The thing that I think people look at, you know, especially the Ramses of the world have made it go like, you do something wrong, everyone shouts at each other. But there are kitchens out there, that are, you know, beautiful places to work that are lovely and friendly and haven't got this like animosity. Absolutely. Look, I mean, as well, as I get later on into my story, I suppose, uh, you know, one of the lessons for me, uh, you know, remember what this was, fuck, this is like 15 years ago, you know, it was yeah, a yeah. long time ago and it was, you know, coming out of those eras of, you know, Peter Ted, Shane Osborne was there with Tom Aiken, Tom Aiken was there with Richard Nee, you know, the, those guys were working with the likes of Marco and Gordon and, you know, that was when, you know, it was, it was brutal, you know, and I think that, you know, that's the way it was led. And I think a lot more now kitchens have become much more amicable places because people aren't tolerating it. You know, they don't want to be fucking have their face pushed into a, a, a bowl of bread and, you know, it's, yeah, that was the time and the space and I'm not condoning it, but fuck me, it got results. It, yeah, it, it yeah, get, no, sure. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, back to Claude. And then, and the, so it was, it was the most incredible year. It was the hardest year of my career by far. I mean, I went home some days, like literally crying. I'd go home and I'd cry and I'd just be like, fuck, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I'd wake up every day and I'd be like, right, let's start again. Let's go to be better than yesterday. And I think that it was a real defining moment for myself that I was able to push through something like that. And I think after that year, I was like, fuck, I can do, I can do and work for anyone now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it takes it takes a certain person though, because you and you and Jamie, like a bit of context, twins. Scott's the better looking twin, but like you two are like, you know, you put your mind to something, you're fucking good at it. Like CrossFit, you're bloody good at. You know, Jamie with sports, you two are sports. Jamie with his business side, I'm like, come on, like you two, <laughs> you're like the Winklevoss twins. You two, you're like, you know, <laughs> if you've got any bitcoins, then you know you can palm some off to me. But you know, it does take a certain person to be you know, good in these situations. Cause I know I would have just gone, 
no, what, mate? Nah, that's not for me. See you later. I'm going to go work at Toby Carvery and enjoy myself. <laughs> no, no, I, don't, I thank you. But I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it, there's two ends of that spectrum, you know, Martin. It's quite pertinent. That, you know, I mentioned that, you know, there, I missed out on a huge amount to get to where I got to. You know, as the story goes, you'll see I didn't go to weddings. I didn't go to funerals. I didn't go to birthdays. I spent a lot of my time either drunk on my days off or, you know, in bed. Like it was, it wasn't, um, I didn't have that period where, you know, I look at Jamie and he went to university and he went to sixth form and he was making loads of friends and, you know, shagging loads of chicks, you know, I didn't have that, you know, but, you know, I missed out on all of that and he'd come back and he'd laugh and joke about, you know, what he did at uni and I'd just be like, well, I just spent the last fucking six months in a dark kitchen, not seeing yeah. anything. Um, but yeah, anyway, back to Claude. So I finished with Claude. So sorry, I did another two years with Claude. We got our second star back, which was great. I was very fortunate. He took me to Copenhagen where I did a dinner at Noma and I worked with uh, Albert Adria, David Chang, Massimo Batura, David Skabin. I worked with all the big dogs. It was I, I do not know any of this. This is why I'm sort of like sitting just listening because these names now, I'm not like a chefy person that can reel off chef's names but like when I hear a name like David Chang, I'm like, fucking hell, mind of a chef, mama Foco, all of this. I'm like, I'm all in. <laughs> yeah, but this was, yeah, this was when, uh, so this was before Rene uh, Noma had the number one spot. Um, Albert Adria, Ferran wasn't there. Um, Massimo Batura was there. This was before Massimo was massive. And, and we did a dinner. Anyway, we were there for a long weekend and we did a dinner at Noma and everybody was supposed to bring their sous chef uh, and no one did except for Claude. Claude bought me. So I was kind of like the 11th man, if you will. And I was like literally a, like, eating, drinking, foraging, everything with all these chefs. And it was just like the most surreal thing, literally walking around Anaki Azapart's like trying to prep lobsters. And then there's like Albert Adrius, like you sit in the bus and he's like elderflower and he's like, I'm going to make an elderflower sorbet. And it was just like, you know, something that will stick with me forever. Yeah, yeah. Like the real, real life Willy Wonkers, aren't they, really? Fuck me. Like the guys are just, it's just an insanely driven passion that, that becomes an obsession. You know, everything, absolutely everything. I was watching techniques that, you know, I just never had seen before. Pascal Babo, who uh, has three stars at restaurants, he was prepping his mackerel and he was soaking it in uh, vinegar with the skin, just a thin layer of vinegar. And I was like, what are you doing there? Are you sousing? Are you pickling? He's like, no, I'm removing the skin. I was like, what do you mean? I was like, just can't you just cut that off? And he's like, no, watch. And he turned it over. And I'm not talking the thick layer of skin, that beautiful mottled skin. I'm yeah. talking a thin membrane. <laughs> the guy was peeling off. I was like, I didn't even know that could that was a thing. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, no, because it's if you taste, it's slightly chewy. I was like, well, never noticed that before, but wow. And then he's like, I was like, oh, what are you serving that with? And he said to me, he's like, these are uh, Japanese turnips. I was like, yeah, of course they are. Uh, and he was like, yeah, I brought the seeds back from Japan a few years ago and I've been growing them in France and, and taste them. And I bit into this turnip and, you know, turnip can be quite bitter and peppery. This was sweet. And wow. it was like an apple. I was like, like now mind is just like, <clears throat> so, so after that, I was like, okay, I need to go now. And, and the life cycle of a chef is sort of two years, I guess. Once you've done a, a winter, summer, winter, summer, you've kind of, got the seasonal menus. Um, and in those days you kind of needed to move around to really build your repertoire yourself. So, so after that, I applied for a job. I went to Alanda Cass at the Dorchester, which had two stars at the time. And I staged with them, uh, which was a great experience. Um, very, very traditional French. My, my idea was to go and, and eventually work in France. So I wanted to work for a French chef. So Decasse and Robichon were the two big guns in London at the time, both had two stars. 
Robichon wouldn't let me stage. Um, and I was like, okay, cool. Um, well, I know they both offered me a job. I was like, okay, cool. Well, I love the style of Robichon cooking on a tapenaki, open, like very Asian influence, but obviously still very, very traditional French. So I went to go and work for Robichon. And uh, I was the senior chef to party on the fish section. So I basically helped run the fish section. We did two, we had two restaurants. We had uh, La Cuisine and Latilia. And between the two restaurants, we've been doing about 250 covers a day. So it's freaking huge. We're getting like oh, yeah. five halibuts in a day. We're getting like 200 uh, longestines, you know, 200 scallops. Like it was a real operation. So it's like, spent a lot of time um, just prepping fish and trying to organize the chefs there and, you know, learning French. But after about like two or three months, they were using like uh, stock bags to make stock and they were using frozen foie gras and they're buying in pasta and they're buying in a lot of ingredients that I'd spent the last four or five years of my career making from scratch. And I was like, yeah. this is, it was like, I'm going backwards here. So I was like, I, I can't do it. So I, I stayed out to the end of Christmas and I said, listen, this is my reasons, my rationale. And the chef Olivia Lemazan at the time was like, no, I completely get it. You know, I didn't want to get caught in a system of, of taking step back because, you know, you can get promoted and, but Robichon's restaurants are the same. You know, that's why he's the two stars everywhere. You know, the dishes are the same. Yeah, yeah. But, maybe in France, they're using fresh longest things. I don't fucking know. So I went back to court and I was like, Claude, what shall I do? Because, you know, and he was like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. But um, listen, um, what about Cambridge? I've got a friend, Daniel Clifford in Cambridge. He's looking for a sous chef. Um, and I think you'd be a good match. I was like, wow, fuck that. Now, Daniel Clifford had a reputation in the industry as being like, but it was like, Claude met everybody else's worst nightmare and made a love child. And then <laughs> it, like, he was renowned for being pretty fucking crazy. So I was like, cool, I'll give it a go then. <laughs> so I, took, I took the train down to Cambridge one morning and uh, I'll never forget it because my, my day, so again, you go for a stage and I turned up and I turned up in a shirt and trousers. I always go smart and then get changed into my, my chef's uniform. Uh, and I realized that I forgot my chef's trousers. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now I've got my suit pants on with my, my chef's jacket. Nice, good look, good look. It was a strong look. So, so now I get in there and I was, I was working with Michelle, who was his sous chef at the time. And he only had uh, three other chefs and him at a two mission star restaurant. And I was like, okay, this is a very, very small brigade. So now we start, I start the day then we get to lunch service and I'm st stood next to the guy on the lard, the, sorry, the garnish. And he's passing stuff up to Michelle who's dressing stuff on the pass. So I start tasting stuff just to see what it's tasting like. And then Daniel's doing the meat, the fish, the sauce on the, the other side. Anyway, it gets to the point he passes me some cabbage, some cream cabbage with blue cheese in it for a venison dish. And I, I taste it and I said, mate, that's too salty. And I gave it back to him and he stopped and he looked at me and then he looked over at Daniel and he looked at Michelle as if to say, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> my, my stuff. So, so he looks at me again and I said, I just told you it's too salty. You're gonna have to remake it. So Daniel reaches over, grabs this cabbage and he tastes it. And he said, it's too fucking salty and throws it now at Liam. Yes. <laughs> so I was like, go away with that one. Uh, so now, now I'm starting to build confidence. So by the end of it, like I'm watching the, the plates being dressed. So now I'm dressing plates. Now I'm calling for staff. Now I'm, I'm running with the kitchen at lunch. Service. So I'm feeling very in my groove. So after lunch service, Daniel's like, right, you upstairs now. So I was like, okay, this is going to be good or bad. And we spoke upstairs 
from, it must've been half past two till about half past six, the first table came in for dinner service. And he was like, come on, come back downstairs and do dinner service. Did dinner service and he drove me back to the train station. He was like, right, you can start whenever you can start. I'm going to offer you the sous chef's position. I was like, okay, great. Is there going to be more chefs when I come back? (laughs) (laughs) So he said, no, 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 we're in the recruiting phase. So naively I was like, okay, so obviously they're going for a big recruitment drive. There's going to be lots of, lots more chefs coming. (laughs) No, there wasn't. (laughs) I started. the recruitment drive. That was it. (laughs) when, When I started, Daniel, who did the meat, the fish, the sauce, the pass, he then handed that all over to me. And I, so we were open Tuesday to Saturday. So it gets to Friday night and Daniel says to me, right, takes his apron off and says, right, I'll see you next week then. Is that weekend? He said, I've got the kids this weekend, so you're going to look after this. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? I've only been here a week. So he was like, yeah, you'll be fine. You know the menu, everything's in there, everything's prepped. And he's, he's one of the best chefs I've ever worked with. Like he gets stuck in. Yeah. And to be honest, when, when he says set, every, everything in his kitchen, Martin, I could go in there today. I can tell you where the table salt is, the molden salt is, is the yellow boards here, the blue boards there. Everything is, it's exactly the same every single time. And if, if it gets set up badly, then that's it. Your legs are going to be cut from beneath it. <laughs> so anyway, so I get through the weekend, doing the whole thing on my own, feel very good about myself. And uh, then the next weekend comes around and he says, now I've got to go now. Um, I'm opening a pub in Brentwood. It's like, well, cool. Great. <laughs> See you later. So that weekend, we get to Saturday night and we're about halfway through service. And Liam, the guy on the garnish, says to me, I'm running out of garnish. No, he hands up garnish for a plate and there's not much of it. I was like, mate, put more garnish in there. It's not enough. Give me more fucking garnish. And I can just, just hear him going, shit, uh, I'm sensing something's wrong. Now I'm running the pass, the meat, the fish, I'm running like a headless chicken. So I'm like, what's fucking wrong? And he's just like, I can see now he's going into himself, like just closing up, wanting the ground. <laughs> so I go over to his drawers and I look in, and I'm like, where's the rest of your fucking garnish? He said, I haven't got any. I said, what do you mean you haven't fucking got any? I found out. I said, we'll go to the fridge down the back. We had a fridge down the back in the prep area and get more. No, it's for now. So you can't, you got to be fucking, anyway. So now the maitre d' comes in. So the maitre d' runs the restaurant, obviously, when, when the chef's not there. So now he's like, what's wrong, Scott? I'm like, nothing, nothing at all. We're fine. <laughs> so anyway, we send their course out. And I'll go down the back and get every fucking vegetable you can find. So it comes out. Now, now I'm changing the dish. I've got to change this fucking dish and start changing the menu. And Irvay, the restaurant manager, comes in. I'm like, listen, we've got to change the, I think it was a, a stone bass dish. And it had like salsify and da 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 da. I was like, I've got to change the garnish on it. He's like, that's fine. What are you going to change it to? I was like, I don't know yet. He's going to bring the bed from down the back and we'll find out when he gets it. Um, well, one, of, one of the many great stories. Anyway, I, I spent uh, two and a half years with Daniel. Um, I left him once um, to go to Japan. I actually wanted to live and work in Japan. So I did, I went over to Japan, I spent sort of four or five months, run out of money, ended up by traveling through Asia, um, ended up in Thailand um, where I met my wife. And as soon as I landed, Daniel phoned me again. He said, you've got to come back. Come for dinner at my house, um, we'll have a chat. So I went for dinner at his house. He's like, listen, I'll make you chef de cuisine. I'm a head chef. Uh, I'm going to get you two sous chefs, up your salary. We're going to get more staff. 
was one of the main reasons that I left and said, you know, I just don't understand how we can push for three stars or gain more accolades with four of us. You know, it's unheard of. Someone cooks the meat, the fish, the sauce, runs the pass. And he knew it as well. And he's, you know, but he's, he's so clever. He's a businessman, you know, he's like, you know, by by adding three more chefs, that's going to add on another, let's say 75K a year to my bill if I'm not getting more customers, you know. And, And all of that responsibility started to become mine. He started to teach me to run a restaurant and understand that people cost money. And, you know, if they're not making a difference and you can do it yourself, then, you know, they're the difficult decisions you need to make. So, so yeah, I, I spent two and a half years with Danny. He gave me the opportunity to be a head chef of a two mission star restaurant. I was 21, 22. Um, I was very young, um, very hungry, but also very burnt out. I was like fucking exhausted. You know, I did everything and anything to make that restaurant work. And, and I loved, loved the place. I love the place. I love him. And, and now we get on incredibly well. And, you know, the experiences I've had between that, I've been flown to Italy and, and cooked in Italy with Francesco Mazzi two or three times. I've been to Singapore and cooked with, you know, some of the world's best chefs in Singapore. You know, it's, it's given me opportunities to fly all over the world. Just to be about him, but I think that's one of the things that like when I was speaking to my other friends on like the other episode, it was like, how cooking can open up so many doors. I think, you know, if any young sort of chefs are like listening to this, like I, I was very black and white, like, oh, I've got to work in a restaurant and that's all I'm ever going to do for my life. But the opportunities that come from it, you know, like you've obviously gone through the whole, you know, Michelin star restaurant moving around, but then, you know, developmental work, you know, working on yachts, working on, you know, airlines, you know, all of this stuff is things that you don't even think of because when you're in it, you're like, oh, where's next? But the opportunities, like you said, being flown to Singapore, going to Japan, it's just can help you travel and it's fucking endless. And that's what, you know, I still love about it, although I'm not really in it, but it is, it is incredible. Like now you're in South Africa. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're spot on. I think Martin, the big thing for me was that when I left college was that we were only really taught about restaurants, you know, and I think like you're, you've hit the nail on the head and I hope more people now out there realise that, you know, look, I've gone into development. I've done development for five years on the manufacturing side. I'm now on a retail side. You know, I've been a category manager for product in one of the world's best retailers now for, for four years. And now I run head up the kitchens there and it's, you know, it's kind of gone full circle, but what was important for me and I think is important for any young chef who is listening is that they take the time to really learn and understand different cuisines yeah. um, and rush to the top. And I think, you know, it's one of the things that I've really learned in life is that, you know, of course, when you're at college, you want to become the head chef as quickly as possible, but enjoy the process of becoming the head chef because, you know, when you are the head chef, it's not fucking fun. You don't cook, you don't fill it. You don't, you don't do the fun fucking jobs. You worry that, you know, your eight chefs turn up to work to start with, then you've got to worry that, you know, the toilets have been cleaned and the driveway is clean. And, you know, it's not so much cooking. Yes, you write a menu, but you don't cook it. The cooking's the fun fucking part. And, you know, I miss being in a brigade and and cooking with the lads and and being on a stove, taking the piss out of the sous chef and stuff like that. That that was great fun for me. You know, becoming head chef, you are the one being taken the piss out of because you're the one, all the pressure is on your shoulders. And I think it's one of the things that I've learned in life is that everything takes time. Everything takes hard work. And you put yourself in those positions, the doors will open. You know, I only got to go to these places because I worked fucking hard and people saw that I was committed and they, that put me in the right place at the right time, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to development now, you know, 
straight after midsummer, you know, when you're head chef of a two-star restaurant, you're pretty, pretty desirable, you know. I've yeah. worked with Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Aldi, Lidl. I've done it all. I've done all of the retailers. And that's what made the, the move to South Africa easy for me because, you know, they wanted someone of my caliber that's that's got that experience. And, you know, when I started cooking, you know, we had the Nokia, what was it, the 5210. Yeah. So there was well, the 3310 was the, the Bobby Didgeridge, wasn't it? That was the that was the snake. go-to, yeah. That's exactly it. But but if you think about how far things have moved on, you know, I couldn't have Googled a recipe back then or taken a picture or posted, you know, I didn't, we didn't know half the stuff that the, the young chefs have today. Yeah, you know, yeah. they can fast track their education on cooking. Of course you can, because you've got more things widely available to you, but you can't fast track experience. You can't, you know, it's, you're going to have to fill it a piece of fish fucking a hundred times to get it right. It's, you yeah. know, like wait. You've got to fucking snatch a thousand times to get it anywhere near good. And, yeah. and, and that's just last repetitions. I think that's, that is the thing it is experience and getting experience in certain places and learning on the job because, you know, you can be taught stuff. Like I, ne- I never went to, you know, you went to Westminster and did three years, but I went to Ashburton down in Devon and did the four week intensive course. because so I already knew how to cook. I was like, I just want that piece of paper to get me in a door somewhere because I didn't want to just turn up and be like, Oh, can you, I like cooking. And, um, yeah, the five years or four years I spent in my first restaurant was where I learned more than, you know, in you know a week at the other place. It was just like, this is how you fillet a fish. And I was like, I've never done it before. And they were like, this is how you do it, hands on. You know, you fuck up a few fish. You don't tell the head chef, you know, you're like, you know, why is this uh, fish half the size of the other one? But like, I don't know, it was, just, it was his sister, I don't know. You know? And it's like, you know, making these mistakes and having a bit of a laugh is what, you know, yeah. me so many things. And I think, like you said, it is, Although it's like very metaphorical, it's like you make fucking mistakes in your life, no matter what it is, but you learn from them. And that's what, you know, makes you move on. You know, yes, you put too much salt in the pasta water once because the chef said, make it extremely salty because the salt will be taken into the pasta. One time I put like about half a kilo of salt into it. because I was like, she told me to make it salty. <laughs> so I did, I did, um, but I made it way too salty, you know, obviously. Um, Look, I want to ask you a few things very quickly. This can be sort of like our, our enders. Um, what What is the favourite dish that you have ever cooked in any of the restaurants you've ever worked in? Oh, fuck. Mike, that's a really difficult question. I think um, there's, there's so many that, I mean, I love the simplicity of Daniel's signature dish, which is um, seared scallop with apple jelly, apple caramel, fresh truffle and fresh apple. That for me is like... I think in the full circle of food is just like simplicity of great ingredients cooked simply and just they pair so well. Yeah. Um, but look, personally, I fucking, I just love cooking a good piece of meat. You know, there's nothing more primitive to me than standing even on the braai here, you know, getting a ribeye, cooking it to perfection, leaving it to rest, opening a good bottle of red and just, you know, indulging. And for all the, the vegans out there, you can also do that with butternut squash, which is delicious. Because <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because with my business that I've got now, I'm, um, you know, all about sort of like the environment and like making sure people are a bit more mindful. And I saw one of your posts that you put up, which was like a massive hunk of like ribeye. And then mm. on it, you did write, you know, sorry to all of the, you know, the vegans that I, that upset, but I buy a quality piece of meat. I don't eat meat all the time. I buy a quality piece. I make sure that I get it from a decent butcher's. It's had a good life and all of this. And it's something that I try and instill with people. Like the meal plans that I offer people hardly have any meat or fish on it. And I'm like, 
if you're going to buy some meat or buy some fish, buy a fucking decent piece. Don't just go and get like your frozen stuff from Iceland. You know, go and get a really quality thing. You know, have a bit of conscience about what you're doing. Yeah, mine. Is, look, my my mantra is 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 yeah, eat, eat less meat, but really eat better quality. Understand, make sure it is. If it's beef, it's got to be grass fed. There's no antibiotics. You know, it's proper free range. And really ask the, your butcher what is free range. How free range is it? You know, the you know I'm fortunate enough to be in a position that I visited many farms. You know, whether it's abattoirs or, or you know, I've been over. Trust me, pigs, chickens. I've seen seen it all. And you know, I think that you know I will never buy commercial meat again. Um, yeah. I hate the word commercial, uh, but you know, I'm lucky I work for a company that really stand for that as well. And I've seen where all of our meat is sourced from. And I think that, yes, we all have our own personal responsibility to eat less meat, but unless we are investing our money when we do buy meat in these butchers and in these farms, they're not going to be around. You know, they're not going to be there to be able to cater for our needs um, yeah. and more money is going to be pushed back into commercial and that cycle will never finish. You know, we're always going to be stuck on this, this hamster wheel um, unless we start making these personal decisions. Yeah. And I think it's like really interesting, like looking at, the the sort of the food scene. Like, I'm not really into the food scene in London. I get a bit like bamboozled with it. It's like in East London, there's so many coffee shops. I don't even understand how you meant to know which is like the best one to go to now. But there's, I don't know if you know Doug McMaster, who's a, a zero waste chef in London. I think I think he's kind of like out of your scene. He's a bit more like hipster, and um, but he's like reinventing the food system. So he's got this restaurant called Silo, and it was started in Brighton, but then it's come to London now, and he's like completely zero waste so he would go and get if you wanted to make like the simplest thing was like if he wants to make a cake he would go and get milk and churn that into butter and then he would take the grains and grind them to turn it into flour and there would be this he calls it like a full um was it a closed loop system so anything no, he takes, yeah. he'll turn it into something but then the the offshoot so say for like the whey or whatever he would use that to make a, a drink or something so there's no waste whatsoever and i think yeah, those kind of like restaurants are like, you know, the fu- he calls it like the future of a food system or the futuristic food system. And it is insane. But what the one thing I was like touching on here is like the zero waste element, because that's obviously, you know, something that is very in, in, the, in the moment. But, you know, Michelin style restaurants, there must be, I don't know, you, you would know, but the amount of waste, because it's like that strive for perfection. Like, <clears throat> you know, you see the chefs on TV, they're like, cutting up a carrot and they would make sure that it's square or it's perfect or you're turning turnips or whatever. What's the, what's the waste like? Yeah, look, I mean, if I look through my whole career, the beginning was a lot worse than it was towards the end. You know, you know, you the conference and banqueting at the Gravener House, you know, that when you're picking through tons and tons and tons. And obviously when you're catering for tons and, and thousands, then there's inevitably going to be a larger amount of waste. But the one thing I would say is that a lot of chefs are very aware around how they can make the most out of, uh, of products. You know, if, if you're dicing a carrot, you're going to use the trim for a puree, for example. And, and you'll see a lot of the chefs have moved towards this or moved. It's always been a thing or since I've been cooking is there'll be a puree of a vegetable and a dice and, 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 and I think that people are very aware of that. I think what people are not so much aware of or, or probably not as focused on is really trying to source as local and as seasonal as possible. You know, we would, you know, working with Claude, Claude's ingredients are freaking incredible 
incredible. And he certainly does source really well. But we were buying from Runges Market in Paris, you know? Yeah. We were some of the best produce in the world delivered to us, but it's still from Runges Market, you know? We're in London. And, you know, I think that one of the things that I've definitely learned being in South Africa is that, and working with Woolworths, because we won't put strawberries on our shelves unless they are in season. And I think that that's also something that we've moved away from as as, as any, anywhere in the world, you know, I know that when I was my time in the UK, you could buy strawberries all year round and it's like, they yeah, taste yeah. like, why would you buy that? Um, so to directly answer your question, I think people are a lot more mindful around how they do use the waste and, and, and transferring it because at the end of the day, everyone's got to make a gross profit when they're running a restaurant. But I think, you know, uh, retailers definitely drive the wrong behavior. Fucking Peruvian asparagus in December. Yeah, I mean, yeah. come on. We, in England have some of the best asparagus. You know, when we get Jersey Royals, I wait for that that four to six week window and eat the asparagus then, and that is it. Because it for me, that's when we should be. It's cheaper. It tastes fucking better. Uh, and there's no that, that that shouldn't be. There shouldn't be any other conversation. Why yeah. are you fucking Peruvian asparagus? You know, in January, it doesn't it doesn't compute. <laughs> You've got such incredible root vegetables that have got fucking loads of flavour and they're cheap. Yeah. Uh, well, I think this comes down to almost, you know, what I'm trying to do is bring a bit more of a simplistic education to it. Because I think with, you know, cooking, it can be so overwhelming. Like people think they need to have, you know, the, your brain, you know, the knowledge of everything. But if you strip it back to the fundamentals of, like you said, like the primitive way of living, like this is the season for this. This is the season for this. Eat healthy food, natural ingredients. You'll be totally fine. And um, <clears throat> yeah, that's kind of what I'm trying to push. Healthy, simple eating. It's uh yeah. I love, I love that. I love that. And I think that mind if you can crack that, you've fucking, you know, you've really hit the nail on the head. The part, I think that the issue is as a general population in the UK, we are educated to, we're educated by our shopping experience within retailers. Right. And when you see a plethora of fruit and vegetables, you know, you assume that that's all in season because as a young, naive person, you wouldn't question it. It's only when you look at the pack and it says like Bolivia, you think, okay, well, first of all, what is that doing to our, our environment? That this blueberry has traveled from fucking Bolivia, but chances are it's probably gone to somewhere else before it's got to the UK, you know, a centralized DC system. You know, the thousands of Ks or miles that that blueberry has traveled yeah, yeah. in different various chambers of, fucking whatever, you know, got a question. We, we need to have another chat about, um, you know, food miles and all of that kind of stuff because it's, it's so deep and it's, I think it's so interesting as well. Um, look, I, I know you've probably got another call cause you're a busy man. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you crack on, but look, if, um, if people want to see your six pack and, uh, look at the, the hunks of meat and the red wine you're, you're eating, you know, maybe maybe someone will listen and reach out to you. But what's your what's the best way to get in touch if they wanted to, you know, just say yeah, hello? You can sell on. Uh, I'm on Instagram. Um, so it's Scott Parker, uh, 1987, I think it is. Good year. But so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to to chat. It's it's actually I find you know I did uh, I did do uh, an article last year and I had a lot of people reach out to me and I just found that it was just nice to be able to inspire people, whether it's making food decisions or healthier lifestyle decisions. I think that ultimately, if you can inspire someone else to do that, you're, you're going to be doing more yourself. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but Martin, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed this. No, it's been cool. I'll, def I'll definitely get you on again. Cause we should talk about like a real specific topic, but I, I, I was honestly just happy sitting back listening to your story. Cause it's fucking 
fucking gnarly, mate. Go on. <laughs> Thanks, mate. I appreciate no worries, it. Dude. Well, you have a look. Have a lovely time in uh, in South Africa. Enjoy the sun for me. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up soon. Much love, man. Take care. See you later, dudes. Bye. The Rubbish Podcast. <laughs>